justice and joy. Well, I've never heard the juxtaposition of those two words together until just now. What a vital relationship. I, I think it's true that to the degree that justice is implemented, joy will rise. Don't you think so? Wow, that was so beautiful. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Well, it's cold in Michigan. I'm telling you, it's really cold here, really cold. I just came, I just came from a beach in Australia via California. It's cold in Michigan. I just said to myself yesterday, just yesterday, right here on this campus, I said, the first thing I would do if I lived here is move. That's what I said to myself. I said it just privately, privately in my, in my mind. But, but I want you to know that the second thing I said to myself was the second thing I would do is move back because of all the beautiful people here and that sandwich shop down the road. I mean, it's all about people and sandwiches as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> and those sandwiches are amazing. Wow. Wow. It's good to be here with you. As you know, yesterday, just yesterday, was International Women's Day. Mm-hmm. And as you are also no doubt aware, uh, we are conducting right here on this campus a campaign that we have called Rise Up Against Abuse. And I want to invite you, if you're unaware of the schedule, it continues this afternoon at about 4.30 in the Youth Chapel, where I will be hosting with a friend of mine, Tasiana Nixon, two expert panels on the subject of abuse. And uh, you are welcome. I hope you come and just engage in the discussion with us during that time. I'm going to pray one more time because I need the Spirit's guidance as we launch into this material. Father in heaven, God, you are incredible beyond all estimation. You're beautiful and we're attracted to you. And yet, Lord, we know there are things about you that have escaped our notice. There are things about you that we have believed that are untrue. And the effect is that we are often compromised in our relationship with you. Oftentimes we are occupying pews, Lord. We are intellectual believers and simultaneously, sometimes, Lord, we are emotional atheists. Dear God, in Jesus' name, elevate our opinion of you right now. May we see you in a light that arouses in us a new passion to know you and to love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I want to introduce to you some of the, the women in, in my life, just a snapshot into um, some of the individuals that have been extremely meaningful to me. Um, the photo that you're looking at is one that has a context. All photos have a context. In this particular photo, the context is a lot of pain. You can see if you look close that I'm clutching them pretty tight because there is a lot of turmoil and uncertainty in this home at this time. The woman, the adult woman in the photo, that's my mother, Laura Emily, incredible, beautiful, wonderful human being. And she also is the human being who endured more pain than anybody that I've ever known personally. When I was eight years old, that woman with strength beyond anything that I could comprehend, loaded me, the oldest, and my two younger brothers and my younger sister into a car in the middle of the night and drove off after receiving her final beating in an abusive marriage. Shortly before that, she informed me that the man I had called daddy, it seemed to me my whole life, was not, in fact, my father. And we found ourselves refugees, if you will, fleeing from a home that was defined by violence. This woman, Laura Emily, introduced into our home the little girl that I'm holding. This is Julie. Julie was rescued by my mother out of a situation that was just absolutely horrific. 
When my mom found Julie with her younger sister, her older sister, Tracy, who's also in that room, you can't see her, but she's in that room that we're standing in right there taking that photo. Julie and Tracy were rescued by my mom out of a home that my mother found them locked in a bedroom with bloated stomach, matted, bloated stomachs, matted hair, and they were, they were basically barely surviving when she rescued them. We, at this point, are living in Washington State, having fled from California. We left California, the home that we had known for all of my years, um, in order to create a safe haven for these little girls. We knew my mom had done the research and found out that, that if we were to move to Washington State, that authorities in California would not pursue and then put those little girls right back in to the abusive situation that they were in. The little girl standing in front of me there with a pretty smile on her face, that's my younger sister, Kimberly. Kimberly Faith. Man, I love that girl. She's smiling, but she has been crying a lot because as we stand there in that room, um, the last in a string of daddies and fathers has left. I'm the last man standing, and I'm not even a man. I'm only 17 years old. I don't know what to do. So I'm telling silly jokes and trying to divert all of their attention from the pain that is palpable at this point. The one who took the photo is my girlfriend, Susan Preston. She's the one behind the camera snapping the photo. She also has come out of a situation in which the men in her life had failed her. Also in that room is my younger brother. You can see in the photo that, that I have blondish brown hair. He has black hair, and you wouldn't know that we were brothers. But we were and are half-brothers because the woman in the photo, Laura Emily, was overpowered by a man, a wealthy man, a politician. And my younger brother is the birth that was the result of that overpowering. The situation is so intense at this point that my mother will shortly after this photo be diagnosed with lymphoma and die by the time she's 42 years old. I'll be standing in that house with these siblings wondering what to do, where to turn, and all of us throughout our little family network, our extended family network, will all be moved in different directions. To say that life for me and for them was defined as pain would be an understatement. There are only two things that I knew for absolute certain as a kid, pain and love. And those two realities were intention in my heart, in my mind, in my world. The love that was there was a steady stream of affection and affirmation from this woman, Laura Emily. She was a force of nature to be reckoned with. The best memory I have of her, and you're going to think that's not a great memory, but it's a great memory, was my mom jumping on the back of a muscular man, her husband, my stepfather, and getting him in a chokehold with one arm and banging his head with her fist on the other side and saying, if you ever lay your hand on my son again, I'll take you out. It was great. <laughs> That's the home I was raised in, and he never hit me again. Well, the Bible, in a sense, is really a history of the abuse of power. And the gospel, in a sense, is really the healing process by which God reestablishes love as the only relational dynamic that human beings know. The beginning of the biblical narrative is a very high point. We are ushered into a conversation. We are overhearing a divine conversation. Somebody is speaking and, and others are listening. They share, apparently, creative power. 
Let us make mankind, humankind, in our image. God is an us. God is an our. That is to say that the God that we encounter in Scripture is definitionally a relational dynamic. God is a community. God is a communitarian being. God is a friendship. God is a beautiful ebb and flow of outgoing, incoming love, Father, Son, and Spirit, in a nonstop dance of other-centeredness. This is the God of the Hebrew Scriptures. God is an us. God is an our. God proceeds to create God's image, and that image, that likeness, is a likeness that comes to our attention in the narrative as a family unit, the man and the woman. You will notice in the text, let us make mankind in our image and let them, not him, them have dominion. At this point in the narrative, there's shared power, there's shared authority. There is nothing like power over anybody. All there is is mutually held management of the resources and beauties of the earth and one another's love and relationship. They had dominion over the earth, the man and the woman. So God created humans in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. God is an us, God is an our, his image is a them. Relational dynamic gives birth to relational dynamic. You could say with theological accuracy that creation is simply and profoundly God's love actualized in material form. You exist, I exist, precisely because God is love. And everything that has gone wrong with our world, everything that is wrong with our world, is traceable, is traceable to an absence of love in relational dynamics. In The Flame of Yahweh by Richard Davidson, You may know this guy. I think he lives around here somewhere. He probably eats at that sandwich shop. If I were him, I would be eating there regularly if I lived here. In this remarkable book, we are confronted with the beautiful reality that human beings in God's original plan were equal. This affirmation of the full equality and mutuality of man and woman in the Genesis 2 account of creation is all the more important, Davidson says, when, we see, when seen in contrast to the other ancient Near Eastern creation accounts, which contain no separate narration of the creation of woman. The Bible's an ancient document, and it was written in an ancient setting in which women were not taken into account. And Davidson is informing us that the biblical narrative, when compared to other early texts, is unique. He goes on and he says that the Genesis creation narratives not only give a detailed account of origins, but at the same time, check this out, appear to serve as a direct polemic against the mythologies, the mythological creation stories of the ancient Near East. What does he mean by this? by its special, lengthy, separate account of the creation of woman in Genesis 2. Check this out, you guys. The Bible, with its high valuation of woman on an equal par with man, is unique in ancient Near Eastern literature. For those of you who are familiar with the the author and seer, Ellen White, you will be familiar with her little homiletic poetry where she says that man was created first and the woman was taken out of the rib, that is out of the side. And Ellen White interprets that to mean, at least in a a kind of poetic sense, if not in a literal sense, that, that the woman was taken, she says, not from man's head to rule over him, not from his foot to be trampled under, but from his side to be his equal. This is what Davidson is bringing to our attention. And yet, the history of woman is anything but a history of equality with man. We're living in the throes of a great agony as human beings. 
And some of us have known greater agony than others. The biblical narrative tells us exactly what went wrong, what went sideways in the narrative. Sin was introduced into the human relational dynamic. Sin, that is to say, the, the inclination to look out for the self above and over the other. Your desire shall be to your husband and he shall rule over you. This is a description of the curse that would come upon the human race. It is not an arbitrary pronouncement. It is God describing the inevitable fallout from the power differential that is now part of the sin problem. That in fact, there will be a train of events down through human history that will define men as abusers, not all and not in every situation, but as a general corporate story that the woman will be striving for liberation and the man will keep her down. There are various interpretations of this text. I favor the interpretation that is articulated in the modern version before you on the screen. You, the woman, you will desire to control your husband, but he will rule over you. He is going to overpower you. Essentially, what Scripture is telling us is that sin is a problem that brings about relational disintegration. And that relational disintegration results in a curse. Not an arbitrary curse, but a cause and effect curse. And that that cause and effect curse is essentially an abuse of power. The entire biblical narrative from this point forward is an effort to re-establish love as the only governing experience in human dynamics, which is to say that the entire biblical narrative is a story that is aiming to overturn power structures that oppress any and all human beings. Eugene Cho, philanthropist, pastor, author, very perceptively looking at the Genesis account, says that the oldest injustice in human history is the way that men treat women. Well, that's the home I was raised in. That's the world I was raised in. It's all I ever knew until that girl who snapped the photo, Susan Preston, said that she would marry me at 18 years of age, by the way, and I was 18. Hallelujah. And she and I decided to break the cycle. We said violence will not have a place in this home. We had the privilege of bringing three children into the world, two daughters and one son, and I'm pleased to say that they grew up into adulthood and they still like us. And the reason they still like us is because we threw them on the resources of their own powers and freedom and independence as fast as they could bear it. There's a book that is necessary reading for anybody who wants to be my friend. Do not try to be my friend if you're not willing to read this book. Half the Sky, published in 2008, is one of the most remarkable books ever written, ever published by husband and wife, author team Nicholas Kristof and Cheryl Wudun. This book is basically an account of what it looks like to be woman on planet Earth. It reaches back decades. It reaches back centuries. It defines what it looks like to live on planet Earth as a woman in a man's world. And the book is remarkable for its insights and for its research into womanhood. The book is ingeniously titled Half the Sky because the premise is that women hold up half the sky and that the world will end in a horrific apocalypse of relational meltdown where there is not equality between the sexes. Well, in this book, we have this hopeful note, but it is a hopeful note in a very, very difficult context. The tide of history, the authors tell us, is turning women from beasts of burden and sexual playthings into full-fledged human beings. 
I say praise God to that. And the language itself makes me sick to my stomach. To even think that this has been the situation that there needs to be some kind of revolution to get us out of is hard to bear. Well, half the sky would inform us of the following research, and I'm just scratching the surface. More girls were killed in the last 50 years precisely because they were girls than were men killed in all the wars of the 20th century. Just let that register for a moment. Worldwide, women ages 15 through 44 are more likely to be maimed or die from male violence than from cancer, malaria, and traffic accidents combined. If you're a female on planet Earth, be careful. Be careful as you interact with the men on planet Earth. You're careful about your lifestyle to avoid cancer. You're careful. You're careful. Be careful. It's tough on planet Earth. Three million females are subjected to genital mutilation each year to ensure that they experience no pleasure in the sexual act lest they imagine that they are equal to men. It is estimated currently that there are about 135 million living women worldwide that have been subjected to genital mutilation. And it happens right here in the United States of America. In the United States of America, one of every four girls is sexually assaulted by a man before she's 18 years old. You're out in the grocery store, you're driving down the road, you're walking down the street. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. It's a horrible statistic. We're literally surrounded with women who have been brutalized by men every waking moment that we are in any crowd of more than four females. We are faced with this reality. Also in the United States, a woman is raped by a man every three minutes. Every three minutes. That's why we're doing the solidarity wall here that is positioned in front of the campus center. You need to go check it out and just read the messages. Even if you don't want to write anything, there's hardly any room to write anything. It's a free speech art project that we started at the U of O. We've conducted it only at secular universities because it's estimated that somewhere in the vicinity of one out of five or one out of six, one out of seven females their first year of college in the United States will be raped. It's the same chances that you'll get the flu. You go off to college, you may get the flu, you may get raped your first year of college. And so we are seeking to raise awareness on college campuses around the United States regarding this issue. At the peak of the transatlantic slave trade in the 1780s, there were 80,000 slaves transported from Africa to the New World. Just horrific, terrible piece of history, the residual effects of which we are still experiencing to this very moment. But listen, lest you think slavery is a thing completely of the past, there are now 10 times that number of females trafficked every year across international borders and sold into sex slavery. In the world in which you and I live right now, in this man's world, in which very little is done to stop this insanity from taking place. I live out in Oregon on the I-5 corridor that runs from the Canadian border straight down through Washington State and Oregon and California to the Mexican border. We are told that it is the most busy human traffic corridor in the United States of America. We're told that if you stand on our freeway and you watch the covered vehicles go by, vans and semi-trucks, that if you had x-ray vision, something like one out of ten of those covered vehicles, if you could see inside of them, you would see little girls and women hunkered down crying, being transported off somewhere into some kind of horrible, horrible nightmare of existence. Well, half the sky 
gives us a number of insights into what it's been like to be females in this world. This is just one example. When anesthesia was developed, it was for many decades routinely withheld from women who were giving birth, since women were supposed to suffer, according to an arbitrary reading, not a cause and effect reading, of the Genesis account of the curse that came upon humanity as a result of sin and not as a result of some kind of divine fiat. The text goes on and tells us that one of the few societies to take a contrary view was the Huicol tribe of Mexico. The Huicol believed that the pain of childbirth should be shared. You can see where this is going. Fully half the congregation will not like this. So the mother would hold on to a string tied to her, her husband's... <clears throat> And with each painful contraction, she would give the string a yank so that the man could share the burden. This is, this is, this is what, this is what um, theologians and philosophers and scientists call radical egalitarianism. You can Google it. Just last week, the World Bank Group released its 2019 study, but this study goes back many years because they have been collecting data for 187 countries, looking carefully at the laws that govern business and the acquisition of loans and access to capital of any kind in order to uh, do business in the world, looking at laws... We were just informed last week, this lengthy study, that only six countries currently in the world, only six countries in the world right now, have equal rights for women with men. It is projected by those who have analyzed the study that at the current rate of progress, women won't achieve full equality until 2073. Those who are engaged in giving aid to developing countries have gone so far as to suggest the revolutionary idea that no financial aid be given anymore to males in any developing countries. Give all the money to the girls and let them start small businesses. That's how out of control the situation is worldwide. For most of human history, women have been owned, dominated, and abused by men. This is just the fact of the situation. The sentiment is articulated by Aristotle in these chilling words. The male is by nature superior and the female inferior. The one rules, the other is ruled. This principle, as if it were a principle, of necessity extends to all mankind. Socrates, before Aristotle articulated his nonsense, I am grateful that I was born a human and not a brute or an animal, a man and not a woman, a Greek and not a barbarian. And first century Judaism, with its Hebrew scriptures and therefore should have known better, adopted this Greek proverb and just kind of changed it into a more Jewish version. I thank God that I am not a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. Imagine living in a world in which that is the ambient sentiment. This is going to come out in relational dynamics. This is going to come out in the look on his face. This is going to come out in the way that he manages the money. This is going to come out in the way you are treated as a female in the sexual relationship. This is an ideology. This is a philosophy. This is a twisted, demented perception of power. The Bible, however, I'm going to suggest to you, is unique among ancient literature in its perception of woman. 
Now, those who have not read the text as a narrative have simply looked at certain passages and deduced that the Bible is actually a book that promotes the oppression of women. I'm going to suggest to you that if the Bible is read as the narrative that it is, that it's going somewhere, and here's where it's going. The biblical text, I believe, communicates rather that women are elevated to equality with with men in the creation account. So it begins on that high note, that beautiful high note of, of creating the man and the woman in God's image, the two composing the collective image of God and letting them with shared power have dominion. The Bible also frames the mistreatment of women by men as fundamentally wrong. The Bible also mitigates male dominance over women and we'll see this in just a moment, by means of legal systems. The Bible is unique among ancient literature in that it actually took the position that not only men, but women should be equal before a law rather than by the caprice of the male, any given male in her life that might want to have an outcome. The Bible also in its long trajectory, in its arc toward freedom and equality for all, the Bible foresees as right, as just, as good, the eventual equality of women with men. That's where the Bible is going. The Bible is a narrative arc. It's not a static revelation. It is a progressive revelation. The Bible is a story that starts somewhere in the Genesis 1 and 2 account. The Bible then from that point goes somewhere. It goes somewhere bad. From Genesis 3 onward, you have a picture of a God who is navigating evil and relational disintegration, not himself the author of evil and relational disintegration. It goes somewhere. The story points somewhere beyond relational power dynamics that are oppressive. And all the while through the story, the Bible is moving through a history of complex relational dynamics that communicate to us ever so clearly that the God of Scripture is a God who is the author of everything beautiful and just and true in relationships, and that the God of Scripture stands against all oppression, brutality, and slavery in whatever form it raises its ugly head. So something like this, I think, is going on in the Bible. The Bible is essentially understanding that the human situation is complex. So time and place in history, cultural conditioning, and collective woundedness or trauma all combine to create a frame of mind for human beings in family circles and communities and nations. All of these factors combine to create a kind of corporate frame of mind that makes humans more or less susceptible to encounters with reality that would bring healing and restoration but necessitate pain on the way there. In other words, psychologically, we as human beings are masters at evading reality in order to spare ourselves the pain of change. And the Bible understands this, and the Bible views human beings as free moral agents, and as free moral agents, God himself, almighty God, has subjected himself voluntarily to move with us through the long, painful process. So the Bible presents a narrative arc. I only have time to share with you five small pieces of that narrative arc. We're going to look briefly at the law of Moses and what it contributes to the advancement of equality and freedom in the world. We're going to look at the story of David and Bathsheba and discover that it's nothing like what we have thought. We're going to see that the Song of Songs, the Song of Solomon, is head and shoulders above all ancient texts in the way it positions the woman in relation to the man. And then we're going to see Jesus, beautiful Jesus, 
in the way that he perceived and related to women. And then we're going to see that Paul was the theologian that articulated from the life and dynamics of Jesus the concepts that were to play out down through history that we are the beneficiaries of this very moment and we need to maximize what Paul, what Jesus, and what Scripture as a whole has communicated to us if we can perceive Scripture as a narrative arc and not as a proof text manual that you can just grab verses from anywhere you want to construct an opinion. If you follow the story where it leads, it leads to the reestablishment of just systems, systems of equality and relational dynamics that are governed by love and love alone. That's where the story goes, regardless of what it is that we encounter along the way in the story where God is navigating the evil that we have thrown at him and one another. So the law of Moses. The law of Moses is complex. I'm going to suggest to you that in the writings of Moses, we encounter both ideal laws and transitional laws. Ideal laws are when we have articulated for us exactly what a human dynamic should be like in its ultimacy. Transitional laws are rules that are implemented that take into account our immaturity and trauma and lead us forward another step, another step, another step with an ultimate goal in view. And you can see how people with a fundamentalist view of Scripture could take the text and point to transitional laws and provisions and accommodations and turn them into timeless, eternal ideal laws. But if you view scripture as a whole, as a narrative, everything becomes clear. All points in the biblical narrative do not display equivalent moral and relational standards. I'm going to show you right now that there are laws in scripture that were provisional laws, laws to accommodate, and laws to say, hey, let's take a step forward as you can bear it, that are not ideal laws that you would not want the United States government, for example, to vote into law and impose upon the public that you're a part of. This is what might be called the principle of measured revelation, which is throughout scripture. I don't have time to give you any more than three examples of what it looks like for a mature God of love who honors freedom and acknowledges trauma, how a God of love would relate to people in a traumatized condition. Well, Jesus said in John 16, verse 12, to his very disciples, there are many things I would like to tell you, but you can't bear them now. You can't process reality on the level I would like you to process reality. You can't this moment go where I want you to go. So I'm going to have to be content right now to tell you what you can bear in the hope that you will move forward and create boundaries in your mind and constructs that will allow you to hear more from me because we're going somewhere. Matthew 19 is where Jesus literally pits Moses against Moses. Biblical text against biblical text. The Pharisees come to him and say, you know, the Bible says, Moses says, we can, we men, not the women, but we men, we can divorce our wives for any reason we want. All we have to do is get the paperwork in order. Bill of divorcement. That's Moses. They're quoting to Jesus. Jesus then quotes earlier Moses to the Pharisees with their legal loopholes because they're camping out at a transitional law and imagining that it's ideal. And Jesus comes along and he says, but it wasn't like that from the beginning. And the only reason Moses gave you that law is because of the hardness of your hearts. It wasn't like that from the beginning. Let me quote Moses to you. And Jesus quotes Genesis to Moses and says it'd be better if you were to understand relational integrity and faithfulness and follow through to build loyalty into your relational dynamic. 
One man, one woman for life. That's ideal, but you're stuck on quoting that text of scripture to me so that you can justify your continued abuse of power. 1 Corinthians 13 is where Paul ingeniously communicates to us that love itself is a psychological dynamic that moves along a trajectory. The more secure, Paul teaches, the more secure I am in God's love for me, the more mental and emotional capacity I have to advance in my moral development. That is to say, the more secure I am in God's love and forgiveness, the more I am able then to see myself precisely as he sees me. When I was a child, Paul says, I I thought as a child, I spoke as a child. But as I'm growing up spiritually, I'm putting away childish things. Now I see through a glass darkly, but eventually face to face. Now Now I see myself ever so dimly, but the day is coming when your love will make it possible for me to face myself as I am, and I will see myself as you see me and not be crushed in the revelation because your love will make it possible for my moral development to concur with the full revelation of your love. So this is the principle of measured revelation, and God is engaged in it throughout Scripture. For example, there is in Moses, Numbers chapter 5, the law of jealousy. The law of jealousy. It's chilling. You would read it today, and if somebody suggested that it be voted into American law, you would protest. Because this law... The spirit of jealousy, if the spirit of jealousy comes upon him, that's the husband, the man in the relationship. If the spirit of jealousy comes on him and he becomes jealous of his wife, check this out, although she has not defiled herself. The girl is innocent, but the man in that setting, in that culture, in that time in history could bring Trump up a false charge against his wife so he can move on and get somebody else and who cares what happens to her. And God steps into the situation and does something revolutionary. There's nothing like this in any ancient text where a woman is brought before this rigid, this this immovable, this concrete reality called law. Equality before law. Now, it's a subpar law because it goes on to say that if the man has an accusation against the woman... She's going to drink some nasty water from dust that is pulled up from the floor and put in a cup. She's going to drink it. And the law says that if her belly swells and her thigh rots, she's guilty. Weird, to say the least. There's some gnarly stuff in the Bible. But if you pan out far enough and you keep reading, you discover that this is, this is the law of jealousy. This is about the man, the man being throttled down by law to not take advantage of the woman. So it's a provisional law. It's a transitional law. It's moving forward. God is essentially saying through Moses to the Israelite man, you will not treat my daughters that way. Now, I can't help you process on the level I would like you to process right now, but at a bare minimum, She's going to be brought before the priest, and if she's innocent, you're going to know it. You can't simply accuse her and cast her off with no provisions and put shame upon her. You will continue providing for her, and you will not cast her out. And in that culture, in that part, that time in history, that was like, what? Really? Every man in Israel had to view his woman as equal before law. It's astounding, actually, if you look at it in the time in which it's written. Then in Deuteronomy 21, there's the law of war brides. This is horrible. This is not a law that you want voted into American judicial civil law systems. When you go out to war, let me just pause right there and say this. The whole Old Testament in its narrative arc presents a God who is, check this out, fundamentally against war and simultaneously making laws about war. Because they're going to have war. So he's trying to, he's trying to mitigate the damage 
of a situation that he can't fully overcome even as almighty God because of the free moral agency of the individuals who are doing, who are engaged in war. God is fundamental. The God of scripture is fundamentally against slavery and makes rules about it so as to mitigate the suffering of those who are enslaved. The God of the Bible is fundamentally against polygamy and for some reason doesn't deal with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and for crying out loud, David and Solomon, the wisest unwise man who has ever lived. So God is moving along a trajectory. This law is more than we could bear today. We couldn't process it in our current situation. When you go out to war against your enemy and the Lord your God delivers them into your hand and you take, and you take them captive and you see among the captives a beautiful woman, you can see where this is going. It's horrible. The law goes on to say, okay, okay, if you take the woman... And you have sex with her and you are tempted to cast her off, you may not. Here's what you need to do. That woman needs to be treated in a specific way to mitigate her shame and her suffering. It's not ideal law. You wouldn't want it voted today and neither would I. But in the situation at the time, that was a step forward toward a more just World, And then you have David and Bathsheba. Oh my goodness. We have so misunderstood this story. We think that David committed sin with Bathsheba. We think that this was an adulterous affair. It wasn't an adulterous affair at all. When the scripture tells the story, the thing that David had done displeased the Lord and Bathsheba is never indicted. No guilt is ever heaped upon her. The situation between David and Bathsheba was a power rape. It was a power maneuver. It was dastardly and dark and evil. And the perpetrator of the crime against Bathsheba was David. When the prophet Nathan enters the picture, he's got a story for David. David needs to process. And this story positions Bathsheba as the innocent little lamb who was taken by the wealthy, powerful man and eaten for a feast. She is, Bathsheba is the victim in the story and in this time and at this particular period of history. This is astounding that the king, no less, and a man would be the one called to account for what he did to a woman. And then the Song of Solomon. Oh, man. The woman is saying things in the Song of Solomon that you would not expect an ancient woman to be saying. Draw me after you, she says. Let us run together. How I wish the king would bring me to his chamber, wink nod. The woman says, tell me, O you whom I love, where you feed your flock, where you make it rest at noon, because when you're not working and you have a little breaky-poo, I'll be slipping by. This is the woman taking the initiative. The man responds and says, you have made my heart beat fast, my sister, my bride. He is, he is the responder to her overtures. And in this text, in this ancient text, the woman is not merely the object of sexual pleasure. She is the subject of sexual pleasure. There is mutuality there is a, a sexual egalitarianism that is present in the text. You have made my heart beat fast with one glance of your eyes, with one, with one strand of your necklace. Some of you are going to trip over the word necklace. She wasn't an Adventist girl. Get over it. <laughs> the woman goes on and says, Come, my lover, let us go into the country and spend the night in the fields. Let us go early to the vineyards and see if the buds 
or on the vine? Let's see if the blossoms have already opened and if the pomegranates have bloomed and there I will give you my love. The woman in this ancient text is equally playful, erotic, flirtatious, and she is taking initiative. It's an astounding ancient text. And then we have Jesus. Oh, don't you love him? Jesus, the ultimate revolutionary. Jesus, Messiah, the one who came into the world of whom Paul said that he is, this is Romans 10 verse 4, that he is the end of the law. That is, he is the telos of the biblical text. He is the one who will make clear where all of it was pointing all along and he will bring it to fruition. He will bring it to completion. Jesus is the the end, the telos, the whole point of the biblical narrative. So Jesus, the point... Jesus, who is the point of the narrative, comes along in that ancient world. In John chapter 4, at this point, his disciples came and they marveled, not like, wow, that's amazing, but like, what is he doing? And they marveled that he talked with a woman. Yet no one said, what do you seek, Jesus? I mean, why are you talking to her? What are you talking to her about? What's the deal? They, I mean, after all, he's God in the flesh and they're putting the pieces together and thinking, maybe we got it wrong, maybe not, I don't know. I mean, he's the Messiah, we're not. Let's be quiet. We won't tell anyone that he talked with a woman. Now it happened, going on in the gospel account, as they went, that he entered a certain village. And this is astounding, you guys. Just process this. And a certain woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. No problem here, just hospitality. There's a problem, however, because Martha has a sister. And her name is Mary. And Mary is not in the kitchen with Martha. Mary has the audacity to take the disciples' position at the feet of the rabbi. She's taking notes. She's processing knowledge. She's a student in the ultimate academic institution, the feet of Jesus. There she is. Martha flips out. She is just going crazy with this anomaly. She was distracted with much and she was serving and she approached him and said, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me alone to serve alone? Therefore, tell her to help me. I mean, I'm a girl. She's a girl. There's the kitchen. That's where we, James, John, Thomas, all of y'all sit at his feet. But Jesus, tell the girl to go to the kitchen where she belongs. And Jesus answered and said, Martha, Martha, Shut up. No, he didn't say that. I'm sorry. (laughs) Martha, Martha, you are worried. That's in the Greek. No, it's not in the Greek either. Martha, Martha, you are worried and troubled about many things, but one thing is needful. And Mary, this is so groundbreaking. Mary, the girl, the woman has made a choice. She has chosen that good part and it won't be taken from her. Leave her right there at my feet learning. Now, this is all the more mind-blowing when you have this first century Jewish text from Rabbi Eliezer. Instructing a woman in the law is like teaching her blasphemy. Let the law be burned rather than entrusted to a woman. This is the prevailing attitude. This is just the male perspective You can be certain that as Mary is there taking notes as a pupil, as a disciple at the feet of Jesus, that the disciples themselves are like, what, should she be here? And Jesus is making it very clear, yes, she should be here. He's breaking new ground, which is in the trajectory of the narrative, old ground reasoned forward to its logical conclusion. And then when he rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene. I mean, something's being orchestrated here. 
out of whom he cast seven devils. She, Mary, went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept. That's the guys. That's the dudes. They're over there crying. They're weeping. Jesus is gone. And when they heard that he was alive and that he had been seen by her, they didn't believe it. If the testimony had come from even Thomas, they would have believed it. But no, it was her. So the narrative arc of Scripture comes finally, in closing, to Paul, who is attempting to wrap theological language around what he sees in Jesus as Jesus lived out the trajectory of the biblical narrative. And Paul says something that you have to hear within the first century setting. Let the husband render to his wife the affection due her? Is something actually due to her? And likewise also the wife to her husband. And then this, the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And all the brothers said, amen. That's good theology, Paul. And then Paul says, wait a minute. And likewise, the husband, the man, the male in the relationship does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Yeah. I heard one male amen. He's like, he's like, bring it on, baby. Okay. He, he's an outlier. He's, he's alone in this theology with Paul. And do not deprive one another except by consent. And another version says, and it is the intent of the passage, mutual consent. Hey, darling, you agree that we should just like cool it off for a while? Yes, yes, dear, I agree. Let's, let's fast and prayer, pray for, for, you know, an hour or a day or a week or something. Let's just, let's just pray for a while. And there's mutual consent. There's agreement here. Hear it in its historical setting. Paul is saying that a man does not have unilateral authority in the relational dynamic. And then come together, he says further on, and then... Please hear Paul's groundbreaking restructuring of reality itself for human beings. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Jesus is the one person who represents all persons. This text is saying that whatever is true of Jesus in his ultimate freedom and liberation, that whatever is true of Jesus is true of everybody else, according to the gospel. To enslave anyone is to enslave Christ. To dominate anyone in Paul's thinking is to dominate Christ. All are one represented in Christ, the ultimate person who represents all persons in his free humanity, standing before God, and in him each of us stands before God, equal in Christ. Every photo has a backstory. If you look a little closer at this photo and this story, I'm clutching them pretty tight. There's a lot of pain here. It's the pain of abandonment. It's the pain of unfaithfulness. Every one of these girls who has endured clenched fists that have been weaponized against her by some man called Daddy. And every one of these girls and the girl behind the camera, my wife, Sue, every one of these girls 
is of priceless, infinite value in the sight of God and is to be treated with the dignity and respect and, yes, equality that is due to her by the dictates, the beautiful dictates of the gospel of Christ. Thanks. Thanks.